We can start with you giving a short introduction of yourself. Let people know who you are. Who am I? That is the question that we are all <laughs> wrestling with. Well, my name is Samir Gomez. I am one of the founders of Ems Tech, and I am the product produ production and events manager as well. So I take care of our community a lot. And we work with women of color in tech and empowering them and teaching them to get into the tech industry. I've worked a lot with inclusion and young people and women of color in both the tech and the communication industry. And I'm also the project manager, project lead at Learnability. Yes. And you've done a great job. We, we had, as I said, several conversations, but then we started getting closer to, okay, how can we uh, illu illuminate the questions and dive deeper into them? And you found some really interesting people that we're aiming to speak to for this series. So yes. starting off, who do you think we should have for the first one? I think starting off, it's important to understand the human and how the humans think before we kind of look beyond that. So for the first episode, I'm thinking of a woman called Dr. Eugenia Cheng, who is a mathematician. She plays the piano. She has a lot of talents, but she did a wonderful TED talk where she basically breaks down biases and is able to explain it in a very mathematical way that even people that don't understand or like maths like me can still understand biases. and. The intersectionality of biases as well and where they come from how we as humans see them getting a better understanding is really what we need so i'm looking forward to this conversation me too welcome eugenia welcome to the learnability podcast thank you very much for having me we're trying to explore different ways of understanding our implicit biases mm -hmm. and ultimately how we can move forward from this. So I would like to start with talking about something that you have mentioned in your work, uh, mm -hmm. understanding the root of our feelings. Mm -hmm. How can we go about in trying to understand the root of feelings? Well, I think, first of all, it's important to accept that feelings are valid. And that the aim of understanding the root of feelings isn't to try and invalidate them or to change them, but just to understand them. And I really think that logic and feelings aren't as far apart as people think they are. And that feelings can be traced back, often through some logical steps, to some root feeling, just like logic can be used to, to trace back some things, something that we think to a root thought. So a root belief. And so something I believe about the world around me can usually be traced back to a fundamental belief I have. And something I feel about the world around me can often be traced back to a fundamental belief or to some experience I had or to something that I'm afraid of because of something. And but tracing back those roots, it's not about justifying things and it's not about excusing things. It's just about understanding. And mathematics is it really about understanding why things happen without judgment, just, just unpacking and finding the root? Trying to be ultimately more methodological about things and having a way to work maybe with understanding and- stuff. Yeah, and I think that's a really good way of putting it because having a method of doing things it is one way we can help 
uh, not have our own emotions interfere with the process. And so if we see someone else feeling something that we really disagree with, then we can just get so emotional about it that we can't think straight. Whereas if we try and just slow down and take very, very small steps towards where their root feeling is, that can be much less daunting, just like with everything. If you break it down into small steps, it's much less daunting. And then you can just take the small steps and see where where the root of those feelings is. Oh, yeah. I find that really useful. And, and I find actually your whole, whole take on this subject a very useful and productive one. So for us to sort of understand uh, yeah. how you're coming into this subject, could you tell us a little bit about your work, what you currently do, and also what is category theory? Mm-hmm. Yes, I am a mathematician. I'm an abstract mathematician. Category theory is a branch of very abstract mathematics. And you might think that makes it nothing to do with real life. And actually, I used to think it had nothing to do with real life either. I thought it was only going to have an effect on real life by a very long string of of knock-on effects. Because mathematics itself, what mathematics does is it makes connections and finds deep connections between different parts of life, often in science. And so it's about explaining why the world around us works the way it does by spotting similarities between different situations. And what category theory does is it does that for mathematics. So it's one level more abstract. It spots similarities between different parts of mathematics so that we can understand the deep roots of how mathematics works. So that makes it definitely sound like it's only really useful to mathematicians. And for a long time, it has really been just used by other mathematicians to help them with their math. And then that helps other scientists and science helps the world. And that's great. But but recently, in the last few years, I've been realizing that I use the ways of thinking of category theory to think about the world around me directly because it's a theory about analogies and patterns and structures and spotting similarities between different situations so that you can use what you've understood in one situation in another one that seems completely different. And so it's all about being, in a way, it's about being more efficient with our brain power because we've all just got a poor finite little brain and we need to try and use it as well as possible. And so if we can spot similarities that are maybe unexpected, then we can understand many more situations at once. And in particular, we can then find similarities between us and other people. Even if we're not very similar to them at all, we can do some some abstract shift and find an analogy that means that we can actually find use that abstract thinking to help us empathize with other people. I really like that. And, and hearing you describe it here, it sort of reminds me of knowledge transfer. So taking mm-hmm. something you learned from one area yeah. and applying it in another area, even though it, it seeming, seemingly isn't the same yes. subject or area, there mm-hmm. is still some transfer that you're able to make. Yes, exactly. And what's really critical about category theory is that it's a very rigorous framework for making those transfers. And that's really important in mathematics because mathematics has very precise structures. And when you transfer things, it's it's like transferring a very elaborately constructed cake in a very bumpy car that mm. it's going to start falling apart. And so what category theory does is it gives a really, really good structure so that when you transfer things, you can be very sure about what will stay in shape 
and what worked. So you're basically bringing a lot of logic and, and extracting a lot of logic from the world around us. Mm-hmm. Um, that leads me to the question that you've also posed. How can we be, think logically in an illogical world? Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult question. And it's, it's the subject of my previous book, The Art of Logic, which came about because I now teach art students at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And I try to say that very clearly. It's hard to say because if I say art students, it sounds like I'm saying arts students, but I'm not. I'm really saying art students. These are students of fine art. And so I am teaching them abstract mathematics. I'm not teaching numbers and equations. I'm not teaching remedial mathematics. Sometimes people think that. I'm not teaching geometry, which they do learn geometry, but that's not what I'm doing. I'm teaching abstract mathematics as a way of thinking. And so I, this has been an amazing experience and has pushed me to think very deeply about what the role of abstract mathematical thinking could possibly be for people who are definitely not going to go into any quantitative careers. They're not, they're art students. They're not going to become engineers or scientists or doctors or, and they're not going to go into finance. They're going to go into fields of art. And so it might be teaching. It might be just fine art. It might be architecture. It might be graphic design, painting, sculpture. And so they often come into the class believing that math has no use to them because they're artists. And so my role is to change, to, to think really hard about why math is important to everybody. And I think it's this, that although the world is illogical, it's not completely illogical. And that there are parts of it that we can understand using logic. There's too much of the world that falls into very, very black and white thinking on and off opposite extremes. So it's not just that some things are logical and some things are illogical. Yes, some things are very logical, and mostly that's in things like mathematics and academic disciplines. But where the rest of the world has a lot of illogical stuff going on, that doesn't mean we just shouldn't use any logic. We should try and use as much logic as possible to understand that parts that are logical so that we can, I mean, that's the kind of easy part, so that we can save the rest of our effort on the more difficult part that isn't logical. Oh yeah, and and from uh, using these methods, we can devise tools that, like you're saying, makes it easier for us to go about our day-to-day life. And you had a brilliant TED Talk where you're speaking about a mathematical formula. Well, it's not exactly a formula. It's a kind of diagram scheme. And in fact, it's a very precise part of category theory. Yeah. Um, But I won't, I don't need to go into that. But the idea is that, that... There are various types of privilege in the world that people get angry about. And one of the reasons they get angry about them is because they have misunderstood what people are trying to say about it. And so, for example, when we talk about white privilege, we're talking about the fact that white people structurally in society are better off than non-white people. And unfortunately, some white people get very angry and think it means that all white people are supposed to be better off than all non-white people. And that last thing is clearly untrue because there are some very poor, unfortunate white people and there are some very rich and privileged black people, for example. But then white people point at at some super rich black sports star and say, see, look, there's a rich black person. That means that there's no white privilege. And so I was thinking about this because I understand very viscerally that that's not the point. 
but you can't explain, you can't reach somebody else by going, no, that's not the point, that's not the point. That, that's sort of what happens on the internet all the yeah. time. And then it then very quickly descends into, you stupid idiot! That's the, <laughs> and that doesn't get us anywhere at all. And so I think it's important to understand why people are getting upset about these things. So I made a diagram of the interaction between different types of privilege. And because one of the issues is that everybody is advantaged in some ways and disadvantaged in some other ways, right? None of us is the most disadvantaged person in the entire world. Somebody, I mean, I don't know if we could ever pin down the one person who is the very most unfortunate person in the world, but it is not anybody who's having a discussion on the internet because the one most disadvantaged person in the world doesn't have the internet. Exactly. Yes. So there already, none of those people is the absolutely most disadvantaged person in the world. But everybody feels their own disadvantages, typically, and especially the, the really angry people feel that everyone else is calling them advantaged when they are feeling themselves as being disadvantaged. And so I made a diagram showing that if you just take three types of privilege structure, it makes quite a complicated interaction between people who have all of them, two of them, one of them, and none of them, yes. and that there's different levels. So it makes a kind of cube diagram where at the top you have the people with all three types, and at the bottom you have the people with none of those three particular types. But then you have the level below the top is the people with two types of privilege, and there's no direct comparison between them. Because the example that I usually take is, is rich, white, and male. Yeah. And so if you have two of those things, you might be a rich, white, non-male person, yeah. but you might be a rich, non-white, male person. And then, but you also might be a poor, white, male person. And because those three are all counted as having two types of privilege, but probably poor, white men are worse off than the other people at that level because being rich solves really a lot of things. Yes. And and so the, it's often, I find, it's poorer white men who are particularly angry about this theory because they get told they're white men the whole time and so they have all this white male privilege, but they're really struggling in life. And it helped me to understand that it's because there are two different structures going on on these groups of people. There's this diagram of interactions of types of privilege but that's separate from the kind of absolute amount of fortune that people have in the world. Not that you can exactly measure it, but in some cases you can understand that if somebody is white and male and really struggling and unemployed and maybe homeless, then of course they're not going to feel very much effect, effect of, their, of their privilege. And it's going to be hard for them to acknowledge that actually if they were exactly in that position, but also black, especially in America, then they would be in an even worse position and that's what privilege that's what privilege really means it means that if you kept all the same qualities of your life apart from this one thing you changed you would end up being worse off and so you have to keep it's like a controlled experiment it's not it's not exactly a real situation because of course we can't just change whether we're white or not white but that is at the root of the idea that structurally white people have have advantage over non-white people. And you actually pivoted that uh, middle level to show mm -hmm. differences there as well. And using these types of visualizations, and I think when you see this once, uh, and if you really think about it, 
you can start using it in conversations and in mm-hmm. your day to day. And that helps you uh, see things from different, pers- it potentially helps you see things from different perspectives. Yeah, because you can switch which three types of privilege you're thinking about yeah. and you can switch. So it's very important for me not to get fixated on the fact that I am female and that I'm not a white person, I'm an immigrant. Because if I get fixated on that, then I will miss all the ways in which I'm extremely privileged. I, I do work that I love. I mean, that's an amazing privilege right there. I love the work that I do. And I am paid well enough for it. I'm comfortable. I'm safe. I have a roof over my head. You know, I have friends. I've, I'm extremely well educated. I've had been able to access excellent education. And so all of those things are things that mean I am very lucky. And that if I don't acknowledge those things, I have encountered people who get angry with me. And this has helped me. This has been really important for me to understand that while I feel the disadvantages of being female in a male-dominated field and also non-white in a very white-dominated field, although I also acknowledge that Asian people don't suffer as much as some other non-white people in mathematics. But still, I'm I'm an extreme minority in my work. If I only focus on that, then there'll always be a disconnect between how I think of myself and how other people think of me. Whereas if I then do this abstract analogy, so I can use the abstraction to perform a pivot to some other situation, that the basic one I, I understood in the last few years is about being Asian, which is, it's many things, but one thing I've realized is it, it has given me lifelong training in doing those pivots. Because on the one hand, I'm a non-white person and I feel the disadvantages of that. On the other hand, I acknowledge that Asian people are probably the most privileged among non-white people. And so I need to do pivots so that I can I can now understand it both ways around. So I understand what it is like to be underprivileged and also what it is like to be overprivileged and have people get angry with me for that. And that's very it's really important to be able to see it from both sides so that you can do things like help people in the way that you would like to be helped and also understand their anger with you yes. if if they're getting angry with you about something that you've done. And those pivots, I think, are a way that abstraction, abstract mathematics can actually help us with empathy. Because in a way, abstract mathematics is all about making analogies between different situations. Yeah. And empathy is about making analogies between different people. So you don't have to have experienced the exact same thing as somebody else in order to empathize with them. If you can find a way to understand it from an analogous point of view that you have experienced more precisely, then you can empathize with them via that. And using abstract mathematics as a discipline is a very, it's a very good way of stripping away the emotion when you're trying to think clearly through a situation. I'm not saying emotion is bad. Emotion is amazing and emotion is important and it's what makes us human, but it can get in the way of clear thought processes. It definitely can. And um, coming at this from the, as a communicator, from the communication perspective, I find this as a really valuable tool in order to connect like you're speaking about with different people in different situations. And when communicating, be able to reach that empathic level of communication. One of the things that, I find very heartening is particularly when straight cisgendered white men tell me that it has helped them because, because there is so much that's divisive about the way we talk about identity. 
yes. at the moment and that it can cause a lot of people who are told they're privileged, it can cause them to get really defensive and angry. And then often we just all end up shouting at each other. And what I've been trying to do is find ways to have more unifying conversations where we can all meet somewhere and then have a more sensible conversation. And so it's like in the olden days, the kind of stereotype of an angry feminist who hated men. Mm. And then, and I know that had a place and it was necessary at the time to break through some of the really strong barriers. But in the end, the point of feminism shouldn't be to go around hating men. I don't think that that's very productive. And the point of identity politics is also not to go around hating white people or hating straight yeah. people. That's also not productive. Um, it should be to draw attention to the disadvantages that people face throughout their lives as a result of their identity, but not to cause wars between people yes. of different identities. There are some things in the world that are so serious at the moment that you can't be neutral about them because there is no, no neutral. Like, I do not believe it is possible to be neutral about racism. We have to be anti-racist, and that's the only acceptable stance. And so that's why I can't teach math that is neutral about racism. I have to teach math that is anti-racist. And it's a big shift for me to think like that because I had been brought up in the very traditional math education where math has nothing to do with real life you just you, you leave all that behind mm. but now I understand that if I ask my students to stop thinking about that when they come into my classroom if that is their daily lived experience and I ask them to stop thinking about it when they come into my classroom they won't be interested in anything I have to say thank you very much for taking our call and thank you for great insights it was a pleasure speaking to you thank you it was a real pleasure talking to you such an interesting conversation